I'm going to ask you to stand one more time as we read God's Word in our text this morning from preaching. So I promise you, it's the last time until the end, okay? You'll get a little bit of reprieve. We're going to be reading from 1 Peter verses three through, chapter 1, verses 3 through 12 together this morning. Let us hear the Word of the Lord. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is, caused, is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that which was, was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring that what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Church, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God indeed. So last week we launched into a new series of preaching through 1 Peter, the text we read this morning, at least part of the text we read this morning. And um, we are calling this series, as you see on our screens, Aliens and Exiles. And we talked uh, chiefly about the reality that our, uh, about our, our resident alien, alien status here in this earth as Christians. And, and, and it finds us always, in some sense, uneasy, on uneasy footing with the world in which we live. What I prayed for earlier on the one hand, the Christian, rightly, the Christian message is one that gives us a, a great hope, rightly, for the world that is uh, longing for a home, a true home. Yet on the other side of this, we understand that we do have a residency here, and we are called to live here as God's people longing for that home, and we are to live here as agents and as agents of reconciliation, particularly. And we understand, as we saw a little bit last week, this, this cost of this engagement um, in the world exposes our alien status. And again, our alien status is not anything other than the fact that we, our home's not here. We have been redeemed. We have been called to salvation as God's new people. So it exposes our alien status because people see that we have a different value system. We have a different vision for life that has been created in us by the God who has saved us. And so therefore it leaves us at times feeling like we are the objects of scorn, objects of persecution. And that persecution and scorn comes in various levels and ways throughout the world. So, you know, and that's the way we saw that. And so the big idea last week was that the Christian pilgrim finds very often that the Christian life is a life that is uncomfortable. It is uneasy and at times feels a bit untenable. Um, that is the nature of life outside of our true home. And so then we explored in the first two verses, 
that one, our identity as alien exiles, we explored it briefly, and then we also reveled in the blessings that are ours, meaning grace and peace that is ours in Christ Jesus. This morning, in our first, in just three verses, we're not going to look at the entire text I read, we're actually going to break it up into three sections over the next three weeks. Here's what I want to tease out of the text this morning, that as alien exiles, we commit our lives to exalting and praising God because of the new life, the living hope, and the incalculable inheritance that he assures us of when Jesus returns. That is what we're going to try to tease out of the text this morning. As alien exiles, we are committed our lives to exalting and praising God because of the new life, the living hope, and the incalculable inheritance that he assures us of when our Savior returns. Now, here's what I want to do for a couple minutes to set us up for the actual verses that we're going to cover. I want to kind of take a, a high view of actually a bigger portion of the part, first parts of Peter here to show us the structure of it, to kind of help you see kind of how Peter's like putting all this information to, together. And, um, and so this will be all this information that we're going to be covering from chapter 1 all the way through roughly chapter 2 through verse 10 is really going to be covered over the next six to eight weeks. But, it, but if I show you this from a high level in some capacity, you'll be able to hopefully be able to see today and next week and the week following a little bit better and a little more clearly in its larger context. And so I'm going to try to do that work now so we don't have to do that work later. Does that make sense? Um, so the first thing that I want to show you is that what Peter's doing in the first chapter and a half of this letter is he's serving us up, all right? He's like a, he's a maitre d'. He is serving us up this wonderful, uh, uh, delicious meal on the gospel. We might even call it a gospel sandwich. That's why I'm going to use the word, okay? There's, a, there's kind of a sandwich action going on here. If you like a good sandwich, I'm going, to, I'm going to serve one up to you this morning, okay? And so there's this sandwich that he does. He desires his, the, the people who read this letter to enjoy the delicacy of the gospel, the gospel that gives us true hope, the gospel that shows us the imperatives that we're called to live in, in, in response to the gospel. This is what he wants to serve us up in this first, first part of his letter. And so what we have in verses three, chapter 1, verse 3 through 12 is the bottom part of the sandwich. That's what we're going to cover the next three weeks. And in this bottom part of the sandwich, if you know what a good sandwich is, you, it's the foundation of the sandwich. And most of us have had a sandwich that didn't have a really good bottom part, right? And when you pick up the sandwich, it just falls apart in your hands. You've had that moment. We probably all had it. A nice greasy burger. It's still good, but it's messy and nasty, right? Like, so the foundation is compromised because of all the grease that's in seeped down and from the burger into the bun, right? So, but this verse, these verses, verses 3 through 12, form the foundation. Why? Because they're the foundation. They're the foundation of what he'll build on from here. They're this foundation of, of, of everything that the Christian is. It's the ground. It's the gospel promise. It's the gospel imperatives. You and I both know that, again, without that secure bottom, that secure foundation, everything else crumbles around it. And we've probably experienced that in some capacity. And so this foundation in verses 3 through 12 in chapter 1 is really this beautiful doxology. We'll come back and talk about that in a minute. This beautiful doxology of Peter is laying out there of how the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are working for our salvation. And how that then, that, it, that, that then is returned with great joy and affection from God's people. 
Okay, so this is the foundation, these first few verses we're going to cover today and in the next couple weeks. The middle part of the sandwich, what you might call the, the tasty parts of the sandwich, right? The part that makes the sandwich just like, like, not just bread is verses 13 through chapter 2, verse 3. It's the filling of the sandwich. And you and I both know that's, this, again, the feeling, filling of the sandwich that makes the sandwich worth eating, right? Like, you, I doubt many of us just go home and just eat two pieces of bread together, right? That, that probably doesn't happen very often. Maybe you're that person. We can talk about your needing help from that later on, but that's probably not the case uh, for most of us in here. We know that the middle of the sandwich is what brings taste to the sandwich. Well, here's the thing. The filling for Peter's gospel foundation is this call to holiness, this call to obedience. It's that reality of, uh, in our lives when we respond to the gospel our holiness and our obedience actually gives lived expression to the gospel. So we can say we believe the gospel, but without the holiness that then is in turn lived out in our lives, we actually don't have a meaningful testimony of the gospel. So if our lives are not driven by the holiness of God and seeking to, to the best with the Spirit's help, to live in light of life that is in response to the gospel, there's a good chance that maybe the foundation isn't as secure as we thought it was. So this filling is very, very important. It brings taste. Think about it. Like Jesus says, you're the salt of the earth. Why? You're obedient. You're working. You're salt of the earth. Why? You're bringing salt to the earth because you're making the world taste the gospel. So this is what Peter's essentially doing right here. He's putting this filling in here. The filling is our holiness and our obedience to Christ. And then the top of this sandwich, the bun, like usually it's a very gourmet bun, right? It looks really nice and pretty on top of it, is the, what we see it's probably the very first thing you see when you get a, a good hamburger or something. It's a really gourmet bun. Well, what's the first thing people see in the world as it relates to the gospel? The church. And so what happens is, to put all of this together, is that it's not that God just creates individuals for the gospel who for holiness, but these individuals are saved, then they're living out the holiness, and it's displayed through this new people. And this is what we see in verses 4 through 10 of chapter 2, that there's this new temple, there's this new priesthood, there's this new people offering spiritual sacrifices to God. Now, do you see the whole picture now? The whole picture is very simple, right? It's from verses 1 in chapter 1, verse 3 in chapter 1 through verse 10 in chapter 2, we see this movement from hope to holiness to love and good works through the church. This is what Peter wants us to connect with and see as the primary movement of his letter to us. Now, that's the largest scope of this. Let me narrow it down just a little bit more into the text that we're going to be covering the next two or three weeks. I said a minute ago that verses 3 through 12 in chapter 1 um, are, they're they're an explosion of doxology for Peter. And they're an explosion of worship where he is contemplating the the wonderful work of redemption through the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So verses 3 through 5 is the work of the Father. And there's this praise for the Father and everything he does. And then verses 6 through 9 is the affection that is drawn out of us because of the work of the Son. And then the last, there is this, for 10 through 12, this, our dependence that begins to grow in us as we rely on God, the Holy Spirit. And so that's what I'm going to do the next two or three weeks is just kind of slow down in these first few verses of chapter 1 so that we might see the beauty of this, to see the praise that God is due for His work, God the Father is due for His work, and then we would be driven into deeper affection next week by the work of the Son, and then after that it might cause us to have deeper dependence on the Holy Spirit in the week after that. So today we will glory in 
verses 3 through 5, the God, the Father, the founder of our salvation. And we will work through this, these three verses under three headings. You can write them down if you want to. Um, our chief end, one. Our chief motivation, two. And our chief strength, three. Our chief end, one. Our chief motivation, two. And our chief strength, number three. Let's talk about that first heading, our chief end. Our chief end as alien exiles. What is our chief end in this life? What is it that God calls us to chiefly among all things as people made in his image? And it says it very clearly there in chapter three. I mean, verse three, blessed be God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Peter starts with the one most essential thing each and every one of us are called to worship. We have a God who is due all praise, he's due all glory, he's due all blessing. It is the single task of every man, woman, and child on the earth, whether or not we bend a knee to Jesus or not. This is what we will ultimately be judged on. What do we worship? What do we glory in? What do we have our greatest love in? Because essential to the Imago Dei, the image of God that we are born into and made into in the garden is that God is, most is the most glorious being of all, thing, all time, and we are now, as God's agents, to go carry out the glory of God to the world. That's essential in the garden. That is what we were tasked with, to go be as stewards in the world, to go and tell the world how glorious this God is who created all things that we know and trust in. This is who God is. This is the chief task of all humanity. And the chief thing that was lost in the garden was also this. The chief, the chief thing that has been marred our, our identity since the garden is the fact that we do not no longer properly worship and praise and glory and adore God. That is what was lost. And that is what God chiefly wants to recover in salvation, Amen. is your worship of Him. That's why we worship the way we do here at Grace Church. The Westminster Catechism has the question that most of us know very, very well. What is the chief end of man? Of man? It says this, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. It's the number one question of the Catechism. This is the essential, most essential reality of the Christian's life. Worship and adoration of God is what we are made for. And Peter uses this word, blessed, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ. This is not new to Peter. Paul uses the same phraseology in two of his letters, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. He also uses in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. But in case you think Peter and Paul got off to the side of one day and said, hey, how are we going to write these letters to the church? This didn't originate with them. In fact, this idea of blessing God is a significant feature that has actually been carried over from the Old Testament. It's how the Old Testament people worship their God. It's what Old Testament piety was all about. This was the central reality that defined God's people apart from the rest of the nations throughout the Old Testament. Psalm 106, 48 says, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Let all the people say, Amen, praise the Lord. 
1 Kings 8.15, Solomon says, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who with his hand has fulfilled what is pre-promised with his mouth to David his, my father. To David my father. See, the Old Testament life and piety was grounded chiefly in the supremacy and the worth of God. And this is where Peter begins his letter. We cannot grasp salvation. We cannot grasp this wonderful work of redemption if we do not understand that its chief aim is to cause us to worship. The heart of our biblical piety today in the church should be the same. It is found in the worship of God who is the fount of all that is good and all that is beautiful. See, God, the Christian knows that God is first and he is the ultimate and that he is the source, as I said already, of truth, beauty, and goodness. There is nothing truly true, there is nothing truly beautiful, and there's nothing truly good that is apart from God. This is what we are called to do. So then the chief aim of the work of the Father, as we will unpack here in a moment, from eternity past was to reorder the chief aim of the human heart. That is, to worship God is the chief, as I said already, is the chief task of every true believer. The chief aim defines and motivates all other tasks a believer has. You can't be obedient to God in any area of your life if the ultimate driving force of that is worship. That's what we're called to. So that's our chief end, our chief aim. Let's look secondly at our chief motivation as alien exiles, and that we see in verses 3b, second part of verse 3 through 4. Our chief motivation is clear here, right? A new life, a living hope, and a calculable inheritance. I'm using his words very intentionally. See, the most obvious and the most compelling reason we are prompted to bless God is because of what he has decreed on our behalf, that before eternity passed, he decreed that you and I would be saved. The decree is to rescue a people by means of a covenant of redemption that has that preceded us in time and space. This is something that's very important to a believer. Second London Confession, chapter, paragraph 3, says it this way, uh, paragraph 1, excuse me, chapter 3, paragraph 1. From all eternity, God decreed everything that occurs without reference to anything outside of himself. He did this by the by perfectly wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably. In this decree, God's wisdom is displayed in directing all things, and in his power and faithfulness are demonstrated in accomplishing his decree, particularly his work of redemption. This is what we understand. And I believe, even though, of course, the Second London Convention comes long after Peter, this is exactly what Peter wants us to see here in this doxology. This is what he is reveling in, is what we have articulated in the Second London Confession, chapter 3, right? That God grants us new life. That God grants us new life by his goodwill and by his own pleasure. We are born again. Look what it says there. According to the great, his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Christ, Jesus Christ from the dead. According to what our salvation rests? His great mercy is this reason why we have new life, friends. 
This is our great mercy. This is the reason why it's God's great mercy. It is important that Christians see that our new life in Christ is by means of God's mercy and his mercy alone. God's mercy is subsumed in everything God has, has, has said he was going to do from eternity past. But that doesn't just say that he, according to his great mercy, it also has another really important word there. He has caused us to be born again. Ooh, there you go. He caused you to be born again. So in other words, he didn't wait around for you and I to kind of get our lives all fixed up and prettied up for him. And then all of a sudden, hey, God, I'm ready. No, he caused you to be saved. Redemption is the apex of God's gracious decree. And he's so committed to it that he causes it to happen. What a beautiful thing. What an absolute beautiful thing. This is what we must have in mind when God, when Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. We all know the story well. Nicodemus comes to Jesus and says, I perceive you're a great teacher and, you know, what you're saying is true. And, 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 and Jesus just looks at him and says, you must be born again to comprehend these things. And, of course, that's all messing with his mind. I've already been born again. What do you mean? I need to go back to my mother's womb. Like, what is that all about? But the whole idea here is that he's saying to Nicodemus, and he's by virtue saying the same thing as you and I were all born of Adam. We're all born in this human broken world that has been stained by the sin and rebellion of our forefather Adam and, and, and Eve. All of human races is now polluted by that sin and death. That is, a, that is a reality that each one of us lives in and has inherited. But Jesus says, that's why I've come to give you new life, to cause you to be born again. The life we're born into by God as his begotten is one of unmerited mercy intimated by God from the foundations of the earth. God the Father causes new life through the work of regeneration. He infuses our heart with the, 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 the ability to believe and trust in him. That's how sweet your salvation is. Revel in that, brothers and sisters. Your salvation isn't by accident. It's not. And that for it demands of us, not as a means to keep ourselves safe, but it demands of us to take our response to the gospel seriously and the lives that we live seriously. It's not enough simply to revel in our new birth, though, but it's also, but way more than that, to grasp what we're born into. And this is what he says next. What have we been born into? We, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. I love the word hope here, but there's not just any old hope. It's not just hope that's kind of a wishful hope. It's not an aimless hope. It's not a lifeless hope. But it says here very clearly, it's a living hope. This is what you've been born into, believer. A living hope, an active hope. It's a vivacious hope. It's a vital hope. Hope that actually fuels us because of what we are in reality living in light of. The object, object itself, Jesus, and what he has accomplished. Your hope is not in you. Your hope is not in this world. Your hope is not in you achieving some, some level of ultimate satisfaction with your life through whatever experience that you're pursuing with you this morning. There is no hope in that. There's only death in that, according to the scriptures. No, but you're born into a living hope, a vivacious hope, a vital hope, as I've already said. Why? Through, the word through here is very important. Through. By means of. What? The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. 
Do you think the Lord is haphazard with causing dead people to be alive again? He doesn't. If he's caused you to be alive, he intends for your life to truly be alive. And friends, we should love that. And we shouldn't garner all the affections of the world. And we shouldn't give ourselves to all of the hopes and the, the, the fallings and the, and the sorrows of the world. No, we are a begotten people who have been visi- who visibly display the person and work of Jesus through our life. Why? Because we are literally alive. See, everyone else in the world who doesn't know Jesus is a walking dead, right? We understand that. They're, they're there, they look like they're alive, but they're not alive. And why would a Christian who is alive walk around looking like they're dead? That would be contrary to everything that God is doing in our life. Again, why, Jesus, why Peter puts this sandwich in place? Because your holiness brings taste to the gospel. You're not going to be perfect at it. Of course you're not. You're not going to fail. You're going to fail at it. And you're going to stumble. Yes, you are. But your heart's content is the Jesus that has given you new life. And the God who then caused you to be born again. But it's not just that. This new life by means of Christ's resurrection has an end in of itself. What is it? An inheritance. It's an inheritance greater than any riches that you can find in this present exile that we find ourselves in. And we got to understand what inheritance meant to Peter. Peter, this big, good Jewish boy, would have understood, that, like all Jewish people, that the inheritance was what? The land, right? The land of Canaan. This is what they were hoping for. The land of Canaan. This would be the land of milk and honey. This is what God would, has been, what he was going to put his people into. And we understand, though, as believers, now who with Jesus has come, he has caused us to, that he sees that land, that land is actually a type and shadow towards a better inheritance, and as Peter says, no, there's an even better land. It's not just this physical landlocked piece of property in Middle East. No, there's a land of milk and honey that that land sh- that points forward to that ha- that's the true meaning. It's a material land. It's a new heavens and it's the new earth. This is where you and I are headed, friends. This is where we're headed. This is where God's people, by God's grace, His mercy and His power, this is where we are on the pilgrimage towards. If you've not read Pilgrim's Progress, I really hope you would read I love that. I've actually reread it here this last year, and, and, and it's just a fantastic read. The, the, the symbolism and the topology, it's a, a beautiful, beautiful book. I think every Christian should read it at least once. Because this is what it's about. We're alien exiles in a land that's not our home, and we're on a pilgrimage home. And we may stumble, we find ourselves in valleys and peaks and all kinds of places throughout this lifetime, but we will make it all the way home. He describes this inheritance with three words, imperishable, undefiled, unfading. To be imperishable means that our inheritance is eternal. It has no lifespan. It cannot be corrupted by sin and death like all the life that you and I live today. To have this inheritance undefiled means that we can never lose, it can never lose its luster, its 
purity. It can never be stained or polluted. That's the inheritance that we are going to, we are going to receive one day. An unpolluted, an unstained, an undefiled inheritance that will never lose its luster or its purity. And then it says it was unfading. Some of our favorite articles of clothing are probably an old pair of jeans or an old t-shirt we just love. We love it. And, but we know that it's got a lifespan. I got a few t-shirts in my, in my drawer that man is like, those things have far exceeded their lifespan. Right? Not our inheritance. It's not like that old favorite t-shirt or pair of jeans. It's, it's its integrity will never be compromised. This is the inheritance that you and I are called to. It'll last forever. You know when you buy a car, and they always tell you buy, buy a new car and you drive it off a lot, it drops into depreciation. Um, minutes after you walk, drive it off the lot. That's not the same for our inheritance. It never depreciates. It never depletes. The riches of the storeroom of God never, ever, ever get depleted for God's people. So hang on. Don't give in to, the, to this world's delights. They're temporary and they will kill you. John Owen said it best in his great book on, on the doctrine of sin. Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. In the end, we bless God because of the chief motivation of our lives, which is the hope in our accomplishments in our Savior, Jesus. This is summing everything we've heard so far. The accomplishments of Jesus keep God's people looking forward to a home that we have been promised. We are, not, we are merely resident aliens here and now, and we have no hope that this is our permanent home. Now think about this in terms of our current context. We have what many of us would call, and I've seen, the outrage culture. And this is how the outrage culture understands the world today. The outrage culture is outraged because at the end of the day, this is their only home, and therefore they're going to fight because this is the only thing that brings meaning into their life. This is why the the Christian doesn't need to play games in the outrage culture, right? Whether it's outrage towards the progressives or outrage towards the conservatives or outrage towards this or outrage... Listen, there's no end to the outrage that we're seeing everywhere lived out in our world today. But do do you do realize... Outrage has historically always been the means by which people try to achieve utopia, right? Go, go read Marx and see what he had to do or what he had to stir up in order to achieve utopia. It was always outrage. Always. You can't move the needle unless you can make people outraged. Friends, we don't have to play that game. We're not outraged. We see the world for what it really is. And Christians should should rest in that, should revel in that. Christian, this is not 
all there is. The Christian vision for true and etern- the true and the eternal is that this life has a shelf life and those outside of Christ have nothing else to fight for than this life. But the Christian knows that this life is temporal and we are people waiting on our eternal dwelling. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 8. Oh, love Hebrews. We'll get there one day. But it's such a <laughs> big book. But I, we're talking about Abraham here. By faith, Abraham, verse 8, obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went, into, went to live in the land of promise as is a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to a city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age. Past the age since she was considered himself, him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as, as good as dead were born descendants, as many as the stars of heaven and as many as innumerable grains of sand in the seashore. Verse 13, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Their home was never going to be found here on the grains of sand in this planet. And Abraham knew it. Well, you know. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them oh, a city, an eternal city. See, our ambition is to keep plowing, keep plowing until we enter the gates of that heavenly city by the merits of our Son, of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. So we've seen our chief aim, our chief end, our chief motivation. And third, we need to consider our chief strength because at the end of the day, we still have a life to live. We haven't haven't arrived home yet. God has determined our days here, and we don't know how many days those are. That is for God's knowledge and not our own. And he has determined them by his pleasure and his grace for whatever means he chooses for that. So we must consider the strength that we need to carry on. And that is namely in faith in a God who keeps and protects us till the end. This is what we see here in verse 5. Excuse me, I'm in the wrong chapter here. Verse 5. who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. How do we carry on? Faith. I'm not talking about empty faith. I'm not talking about self-actualizing faith. See, worldly faith believes this ideal that the best faith is to harness our own self-confidence, to release our own self-actualization, to release our own willpower, this ultimate belief in ourselves. And I think I've already proven that's going to end in death. Faith, by worldly standards, is our ability to achieve a life that we want to have. And that's not real faith. No, this kind of faith 
is fueled by the prosperity gospel, is fueled by many other parts of evangelical, sometimes Christian spaces. And it's a faith that's used to just achieve what I want out of life. But scriptural faith, scriptural faith is this, it's given by God. And it's strengthened by God. That's faith. It's something that God imparts to his people. Faith, according to the Bible, is found in the objective work of God on our behalf. That's why we praise God. That's why we have faith, because God's the one doing the work. God's the one who assures us that we get all the way home. Romans 2, verse 4 says, It's by God's mercy that you are led to redemption. It is God that then gives you the faith to believe so that you might repent of your sin. See, faith, scripturally speaking, is that which we ground our entire lives on an object outside of ourselves, not within ourselves. You can't realize all that life has for you by trying to access something in yourself. You must ground yourself, ground your faith in something outside of yourself, namely the salvation that God has provided for you in Jesus. And you live on that rock the rest of your days. See, true faith is in God's guardianship over his people. True faith is that objective reality that God assures us that we will make it all the way home. And so let me just kind of stir the pot a little bit for a moment. You've probably heard as Baptists, once saved, always saved. That needs to be changed just a little bit. If saved, always saved. And the reason why that's important, and my friend Tyler told me that, and I was like, I don't want to use that one. Um, uh, because once saved, always saved, puts the object of our faith in a decision we made 20 years ago, or 10 years ago, or five years ago, or maybe last week, when we came and pressed our faith in baptism, right? That's once saved, always saved. That's not what our hope is in. Our hope is not a decision I made five years ago or 10 years ago or 20 years ago. Our faith is in the objective work of Jesus to both save us and keep us and bring us all the way home. That is what salvation is. So if saved, you will make it all the way home. Once always saved. Isn't that beautiful? This is not a God who's just saying, I'm getting you to the moment at the altar and everything else is left up to you. No, this is a God who says, I get you there and I'm going to carry you all the way. Amen. All the way home. All the way home. See, the worship of God is commanded in Scripture. And that's what the chief idea of this entire sermon has been, to worship God because He has caused us to have new life through the resurrection of His Son and to a great inheritance. The worship of God in Scripture is commanded in Scripture. And therefore, it is the defining reality of our life. And we have plenty of reasons to worship our God. Two more things I want to say and we'll be done. Because that's true, the driving force of our lives to worship God is the unmerited grace he just show, showed you in his son, Jesus. If you look at what Jesus has accomplished and it doesn't drive you to worship, I would ask you to look again. Look again. Because it changes everything. It changes everything.
And because that is the driving force for our life, the anchor of our life of worship in this life until Jesus returns is a life of faith. Trusting in the, the, the sovereign power and the sovereign goodness and the sovereign pleasure of our God in heaven. Christian this morning, if you name yourself a Christian, would, I, would, you, would you be refreshed and renewed in this, tr- this truth this morning? Would you come to the table with a heart of gratitude? A heart that says, I have been gloriously saved because of the blood spilt for me and the body broken for me. And because of that, that then demands of me and, and, and springs from me this wonderful worship of God. Like, that's what I'm asking you to consider this morning. If there are pockets of sin known or unknown in your life, would you deal with those and repent of those and then come forward? If in some way this is a reminder of the blood spilled for you and that causes you to be repentant this morning, wonderful, I hope that's the case. But you come by faith. Not in yourself, but in the accomplishments of the Son with a desire to worship God. That's the only reason you come. Sorry to take Justin's stuff here, man, because Justin's going to come and lead us in worship (laughs) in our Lord's Supper in a second. That's why we come. Let's pray. Father, help us this morning as we now gather and we